1: This is Fresh Air. I'm Dave Davies. Imagine opening your car door one day and being greeted by the stench of rotting groceries, including raw chicken and vegetables that were left in the back seat overnight in sweltering weather. That happens in the opening pages of the novel by our guest, John Vercher. The main character in Vercher's book is a veteran mixed martial arts fighter, and the groceries rotted in the car because the head trauma Xavier Wallace had suffered over the years left him unable to remember he'd bought them. Vercher's novel, After the Lights Go Out, is now out in paperback. It's about the fight game, family, the ravages of dementia, and about race. Xavier is the son of a black mother who'd left the family when he was young, and a white father who's now struggling with Alzheimer's. As the story unfolds, he learns more about his family's past as he struggles to resurrect his fighting career. Like his main character, John Vercher is the son of mixed-race parents, and he trained in mixed martial arts as a young man, though he never fought professionally. John Vercher's been selected as the University of North Carolina Asheville's Wilma Dykman Writer in Residence for 2023, and he teaches writing and programs at Randolph College, Drexel University, and Chatham University. He's the author of a previous novel titled Three Fifths. I spoke to Virtue last year when After the Lights Go Out was released in hardback. John Virtue, welcome to Fresh Air. Thanks so much for having me, Dave. I'd like us to begin with a reading. This is from the very beginning of the book when we're learning about this character, Xavier Wallace. Uh, You want to just pick this up for us?
2: Absolutely. The game had passed Xavier Scarecrow Wallace by. Too many young bucks on the come up looking for a stepping stone to the next level. The cage had no place for old toothless lions fighting for their pride. And then, four in a row. No tomato cans either. Championship kickboxers, jiu-jitsu aces, each one the next big thing. But none of them had the grind in them. All talent and hormones. Cardio made cowards of them all. Xavier dragged them into deep waters, the championship rounds, where lactic acid torched muscles. Where deep breaths provided no oxygen, only the desperate need to breathe deeper, faster. Shoulders ached, submissions lacked squeeze punches lost their snap kicks sloppy thrown with languid legs hinging and pivoting at the joints from sheer momentum break the spirit and the body follows fast behind but he'd paid a cost for his time in the deep end too worse than the patchwork remnants of stitches in his forehead worse than the accumulation of crackling scar tissue above his jagged orbital bones worse even than the seemingly interminable intensifying headaches Worse than all that was the forgetting.
1: And that is John Vercher reading from his new novel, After the Lights Go Out. So we meet this character, Xavier Wallace. Scarecrow was his nickname, Mm -hmm. uh, who has made a comeback in the fight game and is hoping to get back into it. He'd been suspended for something, which eventually emerges as the story unfolds. But we learn about the punishment he's taken. And the symptoms that this guy suffers are vividly described as we move through the book you want to describe what what he's going through so he's experiencing short-term memory loss
2: he's having violent swings in terms of mood he goes from happy to anxious to angry and uh, not that we don't all do that in our normal lives but he's now experiencing this at a at a very amplified degree and All of this is creating a great deal of uncertainty in him because he would obviously like for these things to not be occurring, but he's got no other options. He's had a point in his life where fighting is all he has left. And he's hearing things. He's got tinnitus, which uh, comes and goes uh, at at varying degrees, sometimes to a a maddening extent. But he's also – he's experiencing what I what I described as a deterioration of his frontal lobe and so there's a voice talking to him in some sense it's him but it's his unfiltered self
1: and what what's really happening here is something that happens to a lot of athletes that compete in high impact sports mm-hmm. not just mixed martial arts but certainly football and hockey and boxing what the cte what is that
2: so the the uh, it stands for chronic traumatic encephalopathy what happens is the as the As impacts occur to the head, the brain essentially slides back and forth in the skull, and as it bounces off the hard surfaces, it creates damage to those areas.
1: Now, you trained in mixed martial arts as a young man. How much of these descriptions come from your experience? How much of it comes from talking to people that you know?
2: So uh, it's a mixed experience. Uh, I always want to make the disclaimer that though I trained, I I never really... Had uh, the same things at stake that the men and women who compete in this sport professionally, or or even as amateurs, hoping to do it professionally. You know, I, I was a tourist, as uh, how I describe it. But um, being immersed in that world, being around some people that did have those aspirations professionally, you do hear the stories of the headaches uh, and and the after effects of of a career that is so physical. But I also – some of the experience about the symptoms themselves come from my working life. Uh, For over a decade, I was a physical therapist. um, And for a good amount of time, I spent um, time working in sports medicine. So I was working with a number of athletes, including football players uh, and and people in other contact sports.
1: Um, You've had some experience with mixed martial arts. First of all, for people who aren't familiar with it, just explain a little bit about what mixed martial arts fights are, how they're different from boxing. So
2: you're going to make me the, the expert on mixed martial arts and nobody hold me to this. But uh, mixed martial arts is, uh, in essence, what it sounds like. It is a, a, a sport that combines m- numerous martial arts, boxing, wrestling. Uh, what is known as Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, which is a form of fighting on the ground that uh, focuses on submissions, meaning uh, joint locks, uh, chokes, things of that nature. Um, and it takes place in a cage instead of a ring, where the, the cage can actually be utilized in much the same way that the ropes can be utilized in a, in a boxing ring. You know, the they, uh, fighters can, can back off of them if they're on the ground, they can use their feet to change position. Uh, um, but it is a, a multidisciplinary sport
1: right and it's one uh, boxers wear big heavy gloves like 16 ounce gloves maybe or something 12 ounces 12 ounce believe, ounce gloves. For, okay, for
2: professional boxing
1: and mixed martial arts that are much smaller four ounce fingerless gloves
2: so uh just enough padding to sometimes keep them from breaking their hands but the the hands need the fingers need to be free because brazilian jiu-jitsu uh, uh, incorporates a lot of grips
1: now, you say that you were a kind of a, a tourist in mixed martial arts, mm-hmm. but you were serious enough about this to, to get in the cage at least once. And, in fact, <laughs> on YouTube, I found a grainy video of John Vercher uh, in the cage doing in, in a match, which you prevail in pretty quickly. Um, what does it feel like? Expl- you know, I have to say – I, I kind of enjoy boxing, although, I mean, mm-hmm. it's all kind of barbaric. I mean, people beating each other up. But there's some rules to it. If you knock somebody down, it gets to get back up. Mm-hmm. You know? Mixed martial arts just seems so brutal to me that you can get on somebody and pound them on the face while they're down. <laughs> Explain the, the appeal of this to us. It's funny. Uh,
2: someone mentioned that to me not too long ago, and I and I do push back on that a little bit because, um, it, particularly, there's a section in the novel where I talk about this, where uh, because we've applied certain rule sets to some of these sports that somehow they seem less brutal or barbaric. But you know, when you watch a football game, those gentlemen are experiencing the equivalent of a car crash every down. So I, I don't think it's any more more brutal than any other sport but i think there is something about the idea that you presented that once it goes to the ground we're so used to boxing where you know a referee intervenes and they're allowed to stand up and they get the standing 8 count um i think it's just something we have to wrap our minds around you know this is this the sport while it's much more mainstream now is still kind of in its infancy in terms of being mainstream so um so that, that that's how I would speak to that point.
1: Right. Um, and, and there are rules. I absolutely. Mean, when you're down, you can't use your elbow to come down on somebody's face. There from, are a, correct. a lot of rules like that. Yeah.
2: Uh-huh. The, it's from nine to 12, is how they describe that. You can't come straight down with an elbow. But there are still, elbows are still allowed in, in certain ways. So, um, but yes, there is a rule set. Uh, and for, for, there was a, a period where. There was an argument that in some ways mixed martial arts was safer in terms of brain injury because a fight doesn't always have to end by a knockout where uh, a submission can occur where someone can tap out and say, I've had enough. Um, so, But as the years go on, it's still quite clear that that head trauma is, is uh, a significant factor.
1: But, well, now that we've established that you've been in the ring, people yeah. can find this. <laughs> you can see this John Vircher, and your friends are yelling for you. <laughs> What does it feel like? What's what's the appeal of it?
2: <sighs> what is the appeal? Well, I can
1: tell you as far as what
2: it feels like, it is the one of the most frightening things I've ever done. Um, but it was also because of that, it was one of the most challenging. And I think because it because I was able to be afraid and still do it. Uh, It did many things for me personally. It was it was uh, an accomplishment I never thought I would be able to do. Um, I was never much of an athlete uh, growing up. So to to compete in an endeavor like that and to succeed. And even even if I had lost to be there supported by friends and family to hear to hear them screaming your name is is uh, a rush like no other. (laughs)
1: Yeah, the moment when you stand up with your arms raised. Uh, uh, (laughs) I
2: get get goosebumps sitting here thinking about it, and it was so many years ago.
1: But you weren't tempted to try and make a career of it? I
2: I think that in the back of my mind, when I decided that I would start training and start training that hard and start thinking about competing, I, I thought, sure, maybe. The one thing I did learn about myself is that I didn't have the mental strength to do that for a career. It was – I often defeated myself before I got in the cage. I wasn't one of those guys that walked into the ring or the cage with confidence and said, this fight is mine. I'm going to win this. It was more, I hope I make it out of here. And if I lose, I
1: don't – I didn't expect to win. Um, So what do you make of that? Was was that because – you know, you weren't as experienced or well trained, or you didn't have the fire.
2: I think it comes from, uh, you know, one of my one of the reasons I was so interested in writing this book and, and focusing it around the idea of uh, mental health was because, from an adolescent and well into my adulthood, I grappled with anxiety and depression, and so uh, I think part of what accompanies that is that imposter syndrome, right? That voice in in the back of your head that says, maybe you're not quite good enough. Maybe you don't do these things as well. Um, And so for me, doing these amateur kickboxing and and the the one cage competition, to me, those were uh, an attempt to fight back against that voice. Um, And it it worked well for me. That's, that's, That's what it did for me. But I knew that I didn't quite have the same fortitude <laughs> to do that professionally to have it be the only thing i ever do
1: and we're glad you did because you've got the mental capacity to write this book <laughs> and talk to us coherently um, and your record in the cage is one and oh right undefeated <laughs> very good uh, this character xavier he trains at a gym in a neighborhood of philadelphia which i know because we're in philadelphia mm-hmm. um, and the, the trainer is his cousin mm-hmm. you know trainers in boxing movies and stories are colorful people and this guy is very colorful. Tell <laughs> us about him and tell us by his name.
2: So his name is uh, Shamar Shot Tracy. Uh, the name Shot comes from uh, an uncle of mine uh, who I unfortunately never got the pleasure to meet um, but my father told me many stories about him and, and I mean come on it's just the coolest name <laughs> uh, both for a boxing trainer and, and just in general so uh, I felt it was a, a way to sort of pay tribute to him, but uh, yeah, he, I, I love sort of that archetype of the colorful boxing trainer. But I wanted to take that a step further by making him family, because Shot's role to me in this book is a truth teller. You know, he he tells the truth whether you want to hear it or not. And uh, Xavier needs that in his life because Xavier tells a lot of lies to himself.
1: Right. He Shot runs this gym, and and part of it, he's. Turned over to the, the, gentrifying crowd, and there he has zumba classes, and you know, I, I you know, cycling things and all that. Mm-hmm. But but he's got a real old classic um, ring where he trains people on the heavy bag and all of that. Mm-hmm. And he's given Xavier our main character. A job there because Xavier was suspended for a year. And I want you to read a, a little bit. I want people to get a sense of some of the dialogue that you write here because I find it so riveting. Um, you want to just set this scene up for this? is This is a heart-to-heart between Shot, the cousin and trainer, and our main character, Xavier?
2: Yeah, so Xavier has come to the gym after discovering uh, a dog in his car that he had forgotten that he had adopted. And As he's explaining to Shot why he's showing up to his gym with this uh, sort of haggard-looking poor pit bull, uh, he's revealing to Shot the struggles that he's been going through with his CTE. He's been keeping them secret as as best he can. And so, to some extent, I think Xavier came to Shot looking for pity. And again, Shot in his role as truth teller is not willing to give him that. So. So I'll read from that point.
1: And tell us who speaks first.
2: A shot is speaking first to Xavier. Excuses is all you got lately, cousin. Xavier sucked his teeth and looked off to the side. Man, go ahead. No, you go ahead. Rolling up in here late like it's your name on the front of this building. Like you don't owe me for giving you this job in the first place. Soon as you got comfortable, you just start coming and going when you please. But you family and I ain't said nothing. Now today... Not only is you late again, but you're strolling here with some broke-down dog like this is one of them restaurants down the street with a water bowl out front. And you got the nerve to come in here and ask me what you should do? Negro, please. Man, what is your problem? Right now, my problem is you coming in here whining because you got some headaches and forgetting stuff. Whining? Did I mumble? Whining. Acting like you don't know this, as he tapped at his temple, is part of the game. You don't want to fight? Don't fight. That's your call. Oh, okay. Then I'll just open a gym and sell out to all the other gentrifiers in the neighborhood. When you're starting to go, yoga classes, shot. I want to make sure I sign up before you run out of spots. <laughs> okay, you got jokes now. You know what else is funny? You not wanting to admit that you're scared of ending up like your pops, drooling and pissing on himself in a home. So you're putting it on me to tell you to stop fighting. Well, I'm not doing it.
1: And that's John Vercher reading some dialogue from his novel, After the Lights Go Out. Um, Where does this dialogue come from? I mean, not just this scene, but there's a lot of really rich stuff in the book. How do you do that?
2: I think uh, I I tend to be an observer. Uh, I love to listen to people speak. Uh, I remember when I was a kid, um, my dad used to just take trips to the local mall And sit and just watch people um, and observe and listen um, for no other reason than it just, uh, I think, a natural curiosity. Um, We also talked about the fact that that I'm mixed race. And so for me, I don't want to speak for all mixed race people, obviously, because we're not a monolith. But for me, as I was navigating my way through adolescence, um, you know, we're already trying to figure out where we belong. Just we as human beings, but when you're mixed race, you're there's a, there's an added component to that to find out where you fit in certain certain aspects of society, and so uh, you know the term code switching becomes a part of that. You know, you you change your dialect to speak when you're with one group, and then you do the same for another and another. So uh, I think a lot of the dialogue comes from that experience.
1: Um, you know, I mentioned in the introduction that. Our character Xavier, the the aging martial arts fighter, had left groceries in his car overnight, and they had rotted because his you know, his brain's been damaged. Mm-hmm. Um, I left out another piece of that. There was something else in the car. You want to just mention this and <laughs> where this comes from?
2: Yeah. So he finds a dog in the back of his car that he rescued. Um, as he was visiting his father at the nursing home, uh, as, as happens at some nursing homes, sometimes, um, rescue centers, adoption centers will bring dogs to, to, uh, for the, for the residents to spend some time with. Um, and he did so because he was worried about being alone, but because of the trauma to his brain, he forgot the dog was in his car. Um... And I did that not in order to manipulate emotions because I know how – as a dog owner myself, I know how emotional we can get about dogs and about harm coming to them. But I felt it was a poignant and striking way to emphasize how – just how bad things had gotten for him.
1: Right. And I will just reassure the audience that the dog is okay. Um <laughs> does not die. But it was a rough night for the dog and you know he – he urinated and and defecated in the car and mm. and, and then but but it was uh, the other interesting thing about that is that he was formerly a fighting dog, right? An aging fighter mm-hmm. like Xavier.
2: Yeah, that uh, the the allegory there was very intentional. It's uh, you know even to the point where the the dog had uh, not eaten. Uh, for a g- great deal of time when it was found by the rescue. And uh, there's a parallel there in the sort of intense weight cutting that takes place in, in mixed martial arts uh, in order to make a weight class for a fight.
1: John Vircher's novel, After the Lights Go Out, is now out in paperback. We'll hear more of my interview with him after a short break. I'm Dave Davies, and this is Fresh Air.
0: Black Twitter, A People's History, premieres May 9th, streaming on Hulu.
3: Last year, over 20,000 people joined the Body Electric study to change their sedentary, screen-filled lives. And guess what? We saw amazing effects. Now you can try NPR's Body Electric Challenge yourself. Listen to updated and new episodes wherever you get your podcasts.
1: We're listening to my interview with writer John Vercher about his novel, After the Lights Go Out, which is now out in paperback. It tells the story of a veteran mixed martial arts fighter struggling to revive his career while dealing with personal and family issues that involve racial identity and the effects of dementia. I spoke to John Vercher last June when After the Lights Go Out was first published. A lot of this this story is about race, and one way we learn about it is about Xavier's father. Mm -hmm. Tell us about him, Sam. So Sam
2: was a, a coach as well as a father for Xavier. And as such, he had a bond with his son that he didn't quite have with his mother. However, uh, as Sam is in the throes of his late stage Alzheimer's, some of the filters that he may have had in place while married to Xavier's black mother are beginning to fall away in quite dramatic ways. And because Xavier's mother left his family when Xavier was a teenager, Xavier carries a lot of resentment for her. But he's discovering through the fog of his brain trauma that his memories about his mother and why she left and actually the memories about his father may not be quite so accurate.
1: Right. So he goes to the nursing home and, you know, his father is is angry. He's talking about you people, mm-hmm. referring to some of the people who care for him. And then uh, we meet this woman, Mrs. Thomas, who's an administrator at the home, who I bet is like a lot of people you knew in your work as a physical mm-hmm. therapist. Absolutely. Tell us – what she tells Xavier about what his father's been doing. <laughs> Mrs. Thomas, she's she's
2: one of my favorite characters as well. I, I know that sounds weird to say that as a, as a writer, but she's also a truth teller. She tells Xavier exactly what is happening is that, is that Sam is uh, using horrific racist language to many of her staff and has become even physically violent at some points in the throes of his dementia. And Xavier refuses to believe it. Until he gets to see it for himself,
1: right um, you, you know since race relations and racial identity uh, are so much a part of this book, um, it was also part of your book, a big theme in your first novel mm-hmm. three Fifths Tell us a little bit about your own background and, and you know kind of what, what where you live, what kind of neighborhood you have, what your parents were like
2: so uh, my father 's black my mother 's white, you know I grew up uh, and, and growing up mixed race while i I think there were some great benefits to it. There were also some challenges to it before navigating those spaces uh, as an adolescent. And then even as an adult, um, I found that as I got older as an adult, I was doing more exploring and interrogating identity. Um, You know, one of the things that was interesting for me is that while my, my father continues to wear this very big, proud, natural Afro my hair was not like my father's. My hair was uh, wavy, but but much more straight. So I had a lot of those, well, "What are you anyway?" questions. And when you get that question asked of you often enough, you start to ask that question of yourself. And well, kids at school would ask you. Kids that. at school, adults, people people were very comfortable asking that question. It wasn't until I lost my hair and started shaving it myself that both external perceptions of, of what I was changed. And that started to shape sort of my internal perceptions. So both three-fifths and After the Lights Go Out are not about answering anything about race. They're they're asking questions and interrogating selfishly for me, but hopefully also for people who are like me that, that may have those same questions.
1: Right, and I think a lot of people who ask those questions and... I might want to think a little more deeply about it. How would you answer the question when it was asked to you? What are you? Well, at, at first, I, when I
2: was young enough not to really understand the depth of that question, I would tell them. You know, I would say, "I'm." you know, my father's black, my mother's white. I got to a point where uh, when I understood sort of the layers to that question, I would say I was a human being. You know, I, it's, it's not about what I am, it's who I am.
1: Your main character, Xavier, um, he's trying to revive his fight career. His mom, who was black, had left the family years before in circumstances that he kind of resented her for. But that changes as the novel progresses. And his dad is in a nursing home Mm -hmm. um, where he's begun to show uh, evidence of very racist thoughts. He's living in his dad's house Mm -hmm. in Montgomery County, which is a largely white suburb of Philadelphia. And when he goes there, there's a neighbor, Ray. Mm Um, what kind of interaction does he have with 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 Ray? Tell us about Ray.
2: Ray was not a not a pleasant man to Xavier. He uh, the minute he saw him in the neighborhood, uh, questioned his presence in the neighborhood. I can tell you that came from a life experience. Well, I was uh, going to ask that. You must, yeah, yeah, yeah. The same thing happened to me in the 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 first week that my wife and I moved into uh, the neighborhood in which we currently live. Some uh, as I was walking my dog down the street, um, someone uh, accosted me about making sure that I picked up after that dog. To which I, of course, I answered that of course I would do that, and then was followed up with, uh, "Do you even live here?" So, uh, uh, yeah, Ray, Ray got a, a special place in the book.
1: Right. Um, and Ray is consistent throughout <laughs> throughout, yeah. throughout the book. If, and if nothing is. else, he is consistent. Um, let me reintroduce you again. We are speaking with John Vircher. His new novel is After the Lights Go Out. We'll continue our conversation after this short break. This is Fresh Air.
0: This message comes from Apple Card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase. A Brief History of the Future is a groundbreaking series filled with hope and possibility about where people are today and what could come next. From tech to tradition, from climate to culture, from science to spirituality, join futurist Ari Wallach on a journey around the world as he meets the brilliant minds and brave pioneers remaking people's futures for generations to come. A Brief History of the Future. Stream now on PBS and the PBS app.
3: I'm Anne-Marie Baldonado of Fresh Air, with a plug for our latest Fresh Air Plus bonus episode. I Heard It Through the Grapevine by Gladys Knight and the Pips is a classic of American music and a staple of the Motown record label, but it almost didn't happen. I know that, that the song had been sitting on the shelf and demoed a couple of times just trying to see what could be done with it. That's Gladys Knight, whose recording of I Heard It Through the Grapevine ended up becoming a top-selling record for Motown and her first number one single. But Knight originally voted against joining Motown. To be very, very honest with you, I was afraid that we would not get the attention that we needed or deserved even. You can hear that entire story and hear our host, Terry Gross, almost singing. You go, Terry. (laughs) In the latest bonus episode of Fresh Air Plus, available exclusively as a thank you for our Fresh Air Plus supporters. If that's not you yet, it could be. Learn more at plus.npr.org.
1: You know, it's interesting that Xavier's trainer is his cousin, mm-hmm. who goes by the nickname Schott. Mm-hmm. Um, and as their dialogue and, and their conversations develop in the book, we learn that Shot tells him that when he was a youngster, when Xavier was a youngster, that Shot would um, kind of have to help him out mm-hmm. because he would get picked on because Xavier was from a mixed-race family, was lighter-skinned. Mm-hmm. And so – you know people guess some some people would pick on him because mm-hmm. they thought he wasn't really black or mm-hmm. black enough or tough enough or whatever and shot would have to come and help him out and that's one of the reasons shot got him into fight games mm-hmm. he needed to learn to defend himself right was any of that based on your own experience?
2: Uh, to some extent I you know it, again, it's the that the navigating of those spaces can be very challenging and uh, I was not. Athletic in school I was and I was certainly not a fighter. I was nothing. I was no no tough kid um, so, you know, I didn't have Sort of the escape of sports or the community of sports, you know, I, I I had to find I found community in different ways through Friends that were fans of comic books or or friends that were fans of books or video games or that kind of thing so I yeah, it, it was uh, I, I there was a part of me that wished I had that safety net kind of, of, of being in those, of being someone who could be more physical or, or uh, felt like someone that could protect themselves. And, and so it was in high school where I first, um, got into Taekwondo and, and really got into martial arts and things like that. But it's still sort of, even though there are other people there, it's still a very individual sport. So it didn't quite have that same sense of community, um, so, yeah, I think that.
1: Did it make you feel more secure in yourself physically, like you could handle yourself if you got into a jam? You know, I, th- I thought it would, but it didn't. <laughs> um, I'm not sure how much you want to say about the mysterious missing black mother in mm. this story. I mean, she does emerge, and mm. we learn a lot more about it. Mm. But I think it's fair to say one of the things we learn is that the racism in Xavier's father – which he exhibits now in an unfiltered way in a nursing home where he yells at the black staff there. That it that it didn't just emerge then. It had been there all along and it and it had showed up in some way or another at in the marriage. And I feel like this is in some ways kind of the heart of the story, isn't it? Uh, yeah. I you know, we
2: we've I've talked to many people about the idea that, that though I have this great love for mixed martial arts, it really was a bridge to tell another story. Um, you know, this this parallel story about dementia in someone younger, dementia in someone older, and, and the things that get revealed through that.
1: So Xavier has to kind of... And again, I'll let people read the book and see how this emerges, but he learns a lot more about his mother, and that's really a touching part of the story. But I guess what's what's at work here is how... You know, people can be in in friendships or even close friendships or even in a marriage with someone Mm. who is from a different background or a different race and think that they are free of prejudice or people assume that that's the case. But in fact, there are really very deep-seated feelings. That emerge. Yeah. I mean, um, did, did you, you know, this may be a complete reach and, and make no sense, but, you know, <laughs> since your parents were a mixed race, I wonder if you ever saw any of that or heard of any of that between your parents. Not to the extent that we see here. And and again,
2: I, I think this is a, for me, a, a novel of interrogation. You know, I think there there's still a narrative that, that people like to convey that, I I have I can't be racist. I have black friends. I can't be racist. I'm married to a black person. I you know, I can't. And and this doesn't obviously is is not just limited to to black and white. Um but but there are people that will still continue to to say things like that and and I wanted to uh I wanted to to push at that theory and and question the 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 truth behind that idea um while at the same time trying not to wag a finger about it and say you know that I have the definitive answers about that uh, if that if that makes sense
1: right i mean it's it's there in our human relationships and you know the the thing that's that's a little hard is that and, in fact, Xavier expresses this when, when the people at the nursing home tell him that his father has been doing and saying racist things about the staff. Mm-hmm. He says, are you kidding? Look at me. Mm-hmm. You think that, that my guy was a closet racist and it comes out now that the filter is off. And I think it, it's probably a little hard for us to think, wow, you, you could have married a black woman and still had these really violent, violently racist beliefs. Right. Um, that, that, did you have a, a someone in mind for creating Sam or Well, uh, stories uh, not not one person no,
2: but but multiple stories uh, of there's a, a large percentage of black women that work in the skilled nursing set, nursing setting, and I've heard story upon story of these women taking care of white patients and residents who are arguably in the most vulnerable state of their lives um, and in need of this significant care and yet hurling the most vile and, and uh, venomous things to these people that are to, the, to these women that are, are caring for them, uh, trying to preserve their dignity while they seem to have no respect for their dignity. Uh, and and I it, we don't talk about it. Um, it's it is these the those women are un, unsung heroes, and uh, having worked in the healthcare profession, I felt a responsibility to to highlight that story and make that known.
1: There are some short chapters in the book mm-hmm. which are written in boldface type, mm-hmm. where there's another voice speaking to Xavier about his circumstance in ways that are kind of taunting mm-hmm. him, you know, kind of pointing out truths or at least beliefs that he doesn't want to face. Who is this? What's happening here?
2: Well, it's Xavier. Uh, one of the hallmarks of that type of brain trauma is there there is some deterioration of inhibition, right? The, the, the filters that we set up ourselves, whether it be the frontal lobe or whatever part of the brain. And... To me, you know, when we, when we've heard some of these awful stories about athletes who have uh, either harmed themselves or or taken the ultimate step of of taking their own lives, I, I had to wonder about what must have been going on in their minds before those things happened, and it it made sense to me to imagine that there there must have been something that almost felt like a disembodied voice that was still them that was telling them these things that uh that were things that thoughts that they may have actually had but they had pushed down because they weren't the thoughts that they should have
1: right one of the things and i wrote this down was when he's talking to him about the fight game um And he says to Xavier, violence is in our nature, homeboy. Violence builds empires. Violence destroys tyranny. Violence is the only way forward, and it's in our DNA. It's damn sure in yours. Um, He further says that that's why people love this sport, because Mm -hmm. we're all kind of animals at root. Um, Mm -hmm. Is that the rage that comes from brain trauma? Or is that, I don't know, is that something that makes sense to you in some primal way
2: it's again one of those things i was interrogating because uh and and again i don't he's that that voice is not just referring you know as that passage goes on it's not just referring to mixed martial arts it's it's referring to all the sports we watch i mean even even nascar i mean what when do people cheer the loudest or when are people on their feet it's when they see these horrific crashes so i you know it's not that i have this answer that this is why we watch those things but I find myself as someone who worked in sports medicine. I I, I have a love hate relationship with a lot of sports that I watch. You know, I, I I love the skill and the artistry and the and the discipline that it takes to become a professional athlete. But for some of the sports I enjoy, I also know I see and I know the cost. And so that voice and that passage in particular is is kind of me interrogating. Well. Well, if I know how bad it is for them, why do I still watch it and why do I still enjoy it? Um, so that that really is 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 what that's about. It's it's questioning both for myself and maybe raising the question for others about why we why we have this enjoyment for for these sports that break
1: people down. You know, since George Floyd, I mean, there's been this movement for social justice and the notion of white privilege. Mm. And the extent to which white people don't think about um, both the ways that they are historically privileged and, you know, some of their attitudes that they might not be so conscious of are important. Um, This obviously connects to some of the ideas in your books. Again, my my whole goal in writing about these topics is, is
2: to generate conversation, because I think conversations are what we're not having enough of. Um, I think when, when we decide that we have the answers is when conversation gets stopped. Selfishly, I write for me first. These questions and conversations are, again, self-interrogation for me, um, but I know that I'm not the only one that has these questions. And so it's my hope that, that by writing to these subjects that others consider these, these ideas and, and questions and, and
1: maybe we, we have a talk about them. Well, John Vercher, thanks so much for speaking with us. Thanks so much for having me. This is great. John Vercher's novel, After the Lights Go Out, is now out in paperback. We spoke in June of last year. <laughs> Coming up, David Cooley reviews the new PBS American Masters documentary, Little Richard, King and Queen of Rock and Roll. This is Fresh Air.
4: Support for NPR and the following message come from proven winners color choice shrubs, who believes that plants and gardening are for everyone. With over 25 years of developing, trialing, and testing some of the most recognized flowering shrubs and evergreens on the market, Proven Winner's Color Choice makes it easy to transform dull yards into vibrant, colorful landscapes. Ready to spruce up your yard this spring? Proven Winner's Color Choice created the Gardening Simplified Landscape Guide to help you get started with tried-and-true elements of good planting design. Identify the roles you want new plants to play in your outdoor space, like ground covers, climbers, or attracting pollinators. Then browse garden plans and see which layouts and plants can bring your vision to life. Proven Winners Color Choice shrubs are available in the distinctive white containers at garden centers nationwide. Learn more at provenwinnerscolorchoice.com NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Shopify, the global commerce platform that helps you sell and show up exactly the way you want to. Customize your online store to your style. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash NPR.
1: Beginning today, PBS presents a new American Masters documentary about singer, musician, and composer Richard Penniman, famously known as Little Richard. The program focuses on both his impact on popular music as he went in and out of rock and roll and on his complicated, sexually shifting private life. It's called Little Richard, King and Queen of Rock and Roll. Our TV critic David Bianculli has this review.
5: Elvis Presley exploded onto the music scene in 1956, changing music history. One of the songs on his introductory album was his rendition of Tutti Frutti, a song released the previous year by Little Richard. It wasn't Little Richard's only quickly covered song. In 1956, Little Richard followed up Tutti Frutti with Long Tall Sally. In 1957, with Lucille. And in 1958, with Good Golly Miss Molly. But by then, Little Richard had walked away from rock and roll. Back in 1956, two of Little Richard's hits on the rhythm and blues charts, Tootie Fruity and Long Tall Sally, would be snatched up and re-recorded by another artist who scored even bigger hits with both of them on the pop charts. That singer was Pat Boone. He appears in this new PBS American Masters documentary, Little Richard, King and Queen of Rock and Roll, to explain and sort of weakly defend his appropriation of Little Richard's music. Little Richard also can be heard reacting in a vintage interview sounding less than pleased.
1: Rhythm and blues music was called race music. Here I'm a church-going white kid from Nashville. I knew very little of it. But then when I heard a song by Little Richard called Tootie Fruity, I loved it. I just flat loved it. And so I thought I'm going to do my version of it.
5: Jumping into 10th position this week, Tootie Booty, and here to sing it in person is the man who made it a hit, one of America's greatest recording stars, Pat
1: Booth. When I recorded that song, it was hard to say. A whop, uh, 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 What was that again?
5: Oh, doody, fruity.
1: Oh, fruity. I was having to write that out. <laughs> a wop, bop, a new, what, bump, bop, oh, write that out, write it out so I could sing it. Bop bop, 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 bop bop My version took off like a rocket. It was a, a million selling hit. The kids loved it.
4: Pat Boone came out singing a white version of To The fruity. I, I was very disgusted because
5: I was just coming on the scene and
2: he sold more than I did.
5: Richard Penniman, whose stage name was Little Richard, came from a tradition of gospel music and returned to gospel after quitting rock and roll in the late 50s. But he also played R&B and what became rock and roll and never let himself be defined for long by any one musical category or in his private life by any one sexual category. Over the years, at various times, he described himself as gay, as being equally attracted to men and women, as being what he called omnisexual, and later as renouncing homosexuality on religious grounds. Yet in the late 50s, when he released some of rock music's most seminal recordings and lit up the screen in such films as The Girl Can't Help It, Little Richard influenced generations of performers with his uninhibited, flamboyant, androgynous style. The documentary gives Little Richard credit for inspiring everyone from Elton John and Prince to Harry Styles and David Bowie. And two members of the British invasion of the 60s, Ringo Starr and Keith Richards, give new interviews acknowledging as much. Both of their respective bands, the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, adored Little Richard and his music. The Beatles recorded some of his songs and Paul McCartney mimicked his style to embrace Little Richard, not to exploit him. And both the Beatles and the Stones, when they started out, took turns serving as Little Richard's opening act. The Beatles did it in Germany before getting their recording contract with George Martin, and the Stones opened for Little Richard on their very first rock tour in October 1963, when the Stones were total unknowns. Keith Richards remembers it well, and in another vintage interview, so does Little Richard. Didn't
0: nobody know them but their mothers, Mick. You know I'm telling the truth, Keith. I'm telling. Didn't nobody know Keith and Mick but their families. It, it was really something.
5: Come on! So uh, suddenly, there we are on this huge tour, and uh, Mick and I used to try and find our way up into the rafters of the theatres and uh, just watch it from above and see how he operated. Insight to how hard you might have to work if you wanted to do this stuff, (laughs) and uh, he did it with a beautiful nonchalance. It was high-powered, but you always had a feeling that there was more in the tank. It was a real lesson in stagecraft especially since we hadn't never seen a stage before. James House, the director of this new American Masters entry, is on firm ground establishing Little Richard's talent, impact, and continued legacy. Later TV clips from the 80s and 90s give a sense of delayed but heartfelt recognition for the man who was one of the original architects of rock music as we know it. The portions of the documentary about the singer's somewhat fluid sexuality and statements about it through the years are less conclusive because Little Richard himself, on this topic, proves more elusive. As a person, Little Richard Penniman was a bit of a mystery and remains so even after watching this full-length TV biography. But he also was a dynamo as a performer, on stage and on record. And that, without question... American Masters conveys completely.
1: David Cooley is a professor of television studies at Rowan University. He reviewed the new American master's documentary, Little Richard, King and Queen of Rock and Roll, on PBS. The final episode of HBO's Succession has aired, and we have questions. On Monday's show, we'll talk with series creator Jesse Armstrong and executive producer Frank Rich. I hope you can join us. Keep up with what's on the show and get highlights of our interviews. Follow us on Instagram at NPR Fresh Air. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our senior producer today is Roberta Shorrock. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham, with additional engineering support from Joyce Lieberman, Julian Hertzfeld, and Al Banks. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Saman, Teresa Madden, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Thea Challoner, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yacundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. For Terry Gross and Tanya Mosley, I'm
0: Dave Davies. This message comes from Schwab. It's easy to invest in ideas you believe in with Schwab Investing Themes, like online music and videos, artificial intelligence, and electric vehicles. Choose from over 40 customizable themes. More at schwab.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor Allianz Travel Insurance. With benefits kicking in as close as 100 miles from home, you can protect your travel plans whether you're driving across state lines or flying cross-country. Learn more at AllianzTravelInsurance.com.